0: outline of what I'm going to talk about uh, roughly. And uh, I come to you, as you heard, as a scientist who is deeply concerned with the environment. I come to you as a Christian who is deeply concerned about what we're doing to God's creation. So uh, that's what we're really here for. Now, uh, one thing that delighted me is uh, the... Archbishop's statement for Lent this year, that the church is waking up. Many of the denominations, not just this. The Pope published his wonderful environmental paper, Laudato Si. And that's brought me great pleasure to see because of all people who should be interested in the environment, is the church because uh, we believe it's God's creation. It's more than just the environment. And so a statement like this is uh, very important to me. So we begin just uh, remembering that uh, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. So that is what this is about, but I'm going to talk to you mainly about the science of it. And uh, so, The document that's on the left-hand side there is a paper from the International Panel on uh, Climate Change. And it was trying to keep the change in temperature at 1.5 degrees. The most recent meetings shows that we're heading way above that. The top graph there is the increase in carbon dioxide in the uh, atmosphere, and the lower one, the increase in temperature. And this is what this is all about, that uh, because we're producing these gases, carbon dioxide and uh, nitrous oxide and methane, then uh, we are humanly changing the climate. This is a map of carbon dioxide from way back. And uh, you can see that the graph begins to curve upwards in about 1800. That is when the industrial revolution started. How do we know that the atmosphere was uh, had this much carbon dioxide then? Well, air is trapped in the ice cores in the Antarctic. And so by digging down there, you can get ap- uh, carbon or the atmosphere from different years back. And you see how it shoots up exponentially. And so we have no doubt that carbon dioxide has increased tremendously since we started using petroleum and digging up and using a lot more coal. Then there's another gas, methane. and it is actually at least 40 times more effective as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. And that, as you can see here, is gradually uh, going up too. Methane is produced in many different ways. Cattle produce a lot of methane at both ends. Rice paddies produce a lot of methane, bogs do, but Worse still, there's a lot of methane trapped under the permafrost in places like Siberia. And uh, that is escaping now and increasing the amount of methane. It doesn't last as long as carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but its immediate effect is very quick. Uh, As this is the first in the series, I'm explaining a little bit about what's causing the current climate change and the mechanism and so it's called the greenhouse effect because those gases in the upper atmosphere work rather like the panes of a greenhouse and so they stop the heat from the sun reflecting back into space or some of it and that gradually heats the earth so that's what's going on so we need to stop putting so much of these particularly the three greenhouse gases, into the atmosphere if we're going to stop having drastic level of climate change. The reasons for it then, what is causing climate change? It is the use of fossil fuels to start with, whether it's coal or petroleum or anything else. So those are the that's one of the reasons for it. And then the other big reason it is very much saying I've been involved in my whole career, and that is cutting down the forest and burning it. This is a sort of scene that I've seen in the Amazon many, many times as uh, over the course of time. and. This year, I think there were so many fires in the Amazon that it hit the international press in a big way because the current president of Brazil is very like President Trump and he's relaxing the environmental laws. And so suddenly we thought we were going down in uh, deforestation, but it went up by 82% from the previous year in uh, 2019. So that is a very serious cause of it. And uh, then uh, something else that obviously is causing it is more people, more carbon dioxide produced. And th- that's something we need to think about in this too. Population of the world is shooting up, still growing exponentially. And so it is a cause as well of uh, climate change. This graph shows uh, the deforestation in the Amazon up to the present. You can see how it peaked here in in, uh, 2003 roughly. There was a very uh, great, we were very distressed. And I think a lot of us were working on it and you can see it goes down on that graph very nicely, but then now it's beginning to creep up again, and uh, so we're having to work even harder, and with great difficulty politically at the moment, in Brazil in particular. Though last year I was in Colombia twice, and I was very encouraged by the attitude of the government there and their efforts to try and stop the deforestation in the Amazon Colombia. This is in an area of forest where I worked, in about 1978, but now it's a soybean field. There was a soybean and this is to feed the international demand for soy principally to feed cattle. Europe buys soy from Brazil, China buys soy and uh, many other places do. And so that is causing it. So. The link, I hope you'll see in the series from the different spe- uh, speakers, between our behaviour and uh, what is causing climate change. The things that we buy that cause deforestation are uh, a cause of it, and it's all over the world, not just the Amazon where I've done most of my work. But this is a map of Borneo, where uh, the orangutan is wonderful animal, they, but the This shows the pathway from 1930 at the top left to 2004. The orange areas in the middle are the habitat for that animal. And it is obviously on this map that is diminishing. But deforestation in Indonesian Borneo has increased more and more. And, uh, if I put one up for 2020, it would, there would be even less space for the poor Orang Utangs. And this is in Borneo, the Sumatra, where the other population is, there's hardly any rainforest left for it. And this is to plant oil palm. So, we need to think about where does our oil palm come from? Oil palm is used in so many things in our lives. And some companies now are trying to produce sustainable oil palm and uh, that doesn't cause any further deforestation. So all these things that are changing the climate are linked to us here. This is a small group of Guarani Indians in uh, the Amazon. I did a study of the, them in the rainforest south of the Amazon in Argentina and we were doing what was called an ethnobotanical study looking at all the plants they use and helping them to develop a sustainable use of uh, the, the, the crops that they had there. And uh, so we classified all the plants. This is, don't bother, bother about the list of Latin names, but these were the most important plants uh, used by the Indians. The top one you can see, which they call pindo, is a palm, and they use that uh, in so many different ways. The second one down is the one I want to draw your attention to, which is a, uh, a plant that looks like an elephant's ear plant that they call Guembe. The second most important plant. So we uh, were working there. And I went back three years ago uh, amongst the Guarani, and uh, I learned a new use. It wasn't in that calculation. It was there before because it was in flower this time. Here is a, a, a picture of uh, Guembe. They use the fruit, we knew that. They use the roots, the long roots from the, the dangle down from up in the trees to make baskets. So it's a very useful plant. But it was in flower this time. And Elvio, that uh, man you saw in the first slide of the Guarani, said, ah, the guimbe is in flower. That's an important plant for us because when it flowers, it's time to plant the crops. And then he thought of it and he said, but it's not working properly. There's something wrong. Why isn't it working? Why does the frost come after we sowed our seeds? There's something wrong with the climate. And the same time when he was telling us that, a swallow-tailed kite flew over. They're migratory birds. And uh, they, they, uh, he said, and this bird, Is also our diary, our calendar that tells us when to plant. But they're coming at the wrong time now. And so this is an experience that I've had now in many different places when I've been studying the indigenous uses of plants with the tribes in Brazil and Argentina. They are noticing that things are changing and they're worried about it because it is affecting their livelihood in different ways. And here's LVO again showing me the corn is not producing. We've had drought, bad drought. And so you can see some years there, 2006, 2017, there've been bad droughts and uh, so their agriculture is not working because climate, is changing. It always was a rainy season It was reliable for them. And 2005 was the driest year that they'd been in the Amazon since 1926, which was an exceptional year. And they all said then, this is a hundred year occurrence, to have a drought like this that is causing so many difficulties, rivers drying up, fish dying, etc. But then, You can see at the bottom of this picture, it was repeated in 2006, 2010, and 2014. And so this is very serious for the Amazon forest because the drought stalls the tree growth in the Amazon. And one of the real functions of this large area of rainforest is that it is a sink of carbon dioxide it is taking it out of the atmosphere. And so we need that forest, not just to burn it up and put more back, but we need it for its ecological function of putting back carbon dioxide. But when there is drought, fire will spread into the forest. And so it uh, is very serious. And the drought stalls that growth of the trees that helps them to take in so much carbon dioxide. Some years ago, I think it was in 1992, I made a trip to Brazil with uh, the then Minister for Overseas Development, uh, Linda Chalker, and we uh, managed to get her to fund from ODA, as it then was, a field station. And this is an experiment that's going on today in that field station in the lower part of Amazonian Brazil where they've taken an area of forest and they have uh, put in plastic so that the rain doesn't reach this hectare of forest, two and a half acres of forest, to show the effect of drought, to have an experiment that really shows people what we're doing to the Amazon. And this slide, the the left-hand side is uh, the vegetation under this only about 15 percent of the the rainfall gets to the plants underneath and on the other side is the forest just uh, 500 meters away uh, where there is a test hectare to compare the two and this is an experiment to try and show people what drought in the Amazon will do. It will gradually turn the rainforest into savannah. And we are very worried about that. There have been a whole series of papers in Nature and other magazines that mention something called tipping point. How much of the Amazon do you need to cut down for the whole system to start changing itself into savannah? So that is uh, very serious. Here's an area of uh, rainforest in Costa Rica, the, uh, the uh, Monteverde Cloud Forest. Wonderful, well-preserved patch of forest. I had a student there doing her PhD, and uh, uh, she was studying a pollination of plants, and I told her to specially observe this one that looked different from the others. Six months later, after we'd been there setting up her experiment, The phone went and uh, cecile just said on the other end of the line from costa rica it's mice and so she discovered the first time pollination by a rodent in the new world and uh, so i went straight down and out into the forest with her and uh, was observing those but it was a time when the golden toads came out and uh, these wonderful animals were all around on the forest floor. I spent more time looking at those when I was meant to be studying the mice going into the plants. But when I went back to Costa Rica a few years ago, I asked how the golden toads doing and they said they were extinct, plus other ones that occurred in Monteverde. Because now there's a long dry season and these animals require it to be wet all the time. That's why it's called cloud forest, a good habitat for them. And so things are dying, but why are they dying? This paper about it, really the title there tells you everything on that. Lowland deforestation, not up in the mountains in Monteverde, is affecting the nearby mountain forests. This is the trouble with the environment and climate change everything is connected together so what you do in one part of Costa Rica in the lowlands is affecting this most beautiful reserve up in the highlands it is truly well preserved and patrolled so of all the reserves its model in many ways but they can't control the climate that's going on and this is a big Problem in conservation in many parts of the world. I'll just use this as an example. This paper says that uh, the mountains in Japan, the vegetation is being affected by climate change. And this is what is worrying that we're getting data from all over the world, not in just one place, so it's not a local thing. When I was a schoolboy, holidays were usually in Scotland. And I spent a lot of time in the Scottish mountains looking at those rare mountain plants that occur in Scottish mountains, saxifrages and others. And in fact, the first sort of paper I ever wrote was the mountain floor of Ben Law's in the school magazine. And uh, that uh, was wonderful to see all those plants. But today, botanist at Edinburgh Botanic Garden are studying the Scottish alpine flora and they see that because of climate change, the lowland flora is gradually creeping up the mountains and displacing those endemic mountain plants. Scottish mountains aren't very high and soon they'll be driven completely off. If you're a botanist or a zoologist studying organisms, you have absolutely no doubt that there is climate change because there are so many evidences of it. This demonstrates what's called the escalator effect. Plants are moving up the mountains, animals are moving up because the habitat, the area that they used to uh, occupy, climatically is higher up the mountain. And so this is certainly Good evidence of uh, climate change. These wonderful animals that are in uh, mainly the highland mountains of the United States in the Rocky Mountains, pikers, and uh, there's uh, many several different species. But they need that high alpine climate that there is there. But uh, on several mountains, it's already the climate has changed enough to make them extinct on those mountains. So you can go on giving evidences from everywhere. I spend quite a lot of time in Hawaii because I'm uh, on the committee of the Botanic Gardens there. And these birds here are the honey creepers. And they are wonderful. Look at the different beak shapes and their plants that match those beak shapes in the the flowers and the birds gather the nectar out of those plants. But already quite a lot of species of honey creepers are extinct, but those that remain are now threatened because insects are moving up the mountain with climate change and taking with it avian malaria. Before, the mosquito that carry avian malaria were in the lowlands, affecting the lowland population, but not these honey creepers up in the highlands, but it is gradually creeping up. So everywhere we see this. Q Palace in this photo. And uh, uh, one of my botanists at Q studied the flowering of uh, plants at Q. When he first started going to Q, uh, I think in the 1950s, he came in every day and made notes of when the first flowers were produced. When I became director, he was just reaching uh, uh, retirement, and he had these data for 35 years. And he showed them to me, and it showed that the plants were now flowering at least a week earlier on average. And I said, Nigel, you've got wonderful uh, evidence here of climate change. Uh, you should publish it he said but this is just my hobby i've been doing this all my life Uh, but eventually i persuaded him to publish this important evidence of climate change right there in uh, kew gardens incidentally nigel hepper was a member of uh, the uh, Duke Street Baptist Church in, uh, in Richmond. He was also not only a fellow scientist, but he was a fellow brother in Christ. And uh, he was very kind to me when I was a student. So it was very strange when uh, I eventually I, turned, I came to be his boss. Now, This is happening all over the place. This is Washington. They're very confused when the cherries will flower now. They used to be able to say, this week is cherry week because it's changing. And the botanists at the Smithsonian Institution have got identical data to Nigel Hepper's data at Kew. So it's worldwide that the flowering times are changing. This is a study by uh, professors from the University of York. And it says there that the 385 British plant species in just one decade advanced by four and a half days as when they were flowering. All these things are showing us that climate change is real. Uh, this was uh, a newspaper the other day on the Isle of Wight, a plant that has never flowered, but the climate is much warmer there now. So we have so much data from, uh, as botanists about climate change, but also migratory birds are being affected by climate change. They're arriving at different times from when they used to. And this is a real problem. So, on the, uh, the the right-hand side, you see what it was like in 1980, and the uh, the chicks are in yellow, and the peak of insects for them to e- the uh, to feed the birds is in red. And you see how they coincide nicely on the right-hand side, but you see that they're no longer synchronous today. And one of the causes of the loss of our songbirds is that there isn't this wonderful synchrony that makes sure the insects are there just when the birds need to feed their chicks. And uh, so we are seeing climate change evidence from it. This probably is one of the the first mammals that they really believe has been uh, made extinct by climate change, from the mosaic-tailed rat from uh, an island, Bramble Cay, in uh, Australia. And uh, so that's been uh, talked about a lot. And part of the reason for the extinction of that, and probably other things soon, is sea level rise. So one of the dangers of warmer climate is that the ice in the polar regions and in glaciers is melting and that is causing the sea level to rise. Now, if you look at this graph carefully, which is uh, for, from 1870 to 1924 at the base, so it was rising a little bit then. And then the next section there is from 1925 to 1992 it's going up a bit more. And then you see the top part of it is from 1993 to 2012. What is happening is sea level is rising faster all the time. So it's increasing. It wasn't very much to think about in uh, 1924 or to worry about at all. But today it is. Think of how much of the world's populations are at sea level. Bangladesh is already suffering terribly from rising sea levels. Island populations are some of the most vociferous in international meetings on climate change because they are being affected. They're losing their territory. And so these small nations in the Pacific are very important politically for their voice in uh, the United Nations. And when the uh, the ice is on land, somewhere like Greenland, then that goes into the sea and causes sea level rise. If it's the the icebergs that are already in the sea and they melt, it's not causing the same level as when it comes off the land. This is in Colombia with uh, 1946 compared with 2006. And you can sow glaciers of the world that are changing and melting in many places. A lot in South America that I've seen over the course of my career, and also in the Himalayas too. And this is again, water coming off the land and into the sea. In the questions I was asked uh, about, I mentioned the seed bank that we set up at Kew. And this is the famous one in Svalbard. Uh, in Norway, that is collecting all the varieties of crop plants that uh, we can. And it was put in Svalbard because there it is permafrost. And so the heating, the cooling to keep the seeds cold, is not so expensive as doing it in a warmer climate. Last year, the ice around the entrance of Svalbard Seed Vault began to melt, something they never thought when they planned to build this, because they said it's in permafrost. So they had to alter the drainage at the entrance very severely to cope with water instead of the ice. Incidentally, this seed bank exchanges with the Q seed bank and we have duplicates of each other's collections in a small way. Polar bears are another animal that's affected by climate change because they need the ice to hunt the seals. But there's not so much uh, ice available for them in uh, the Arctic region anymore. I wrote this book in 1997. And you can see the title, Extinction is Forever. And that was because I was truly worried then about plants going extinct. And I got together authors from every country in the Americas to write a chapter on what was happening in uh, their particular country. And I quoted the book on tropical forests and climate change in 1981. But it's taken the world a long time to wake up. Now it is waking up and so please continue to help it so that uh, things like this, the extinction does not carry on because it's not just the effect on climate, it's what it's doing to all these plants and animals that are so holding the world together with the interactions. And there's so many examples of extinction. This is just a cartoon of the last individual of uh, various uh, species that have gone extinct. I think uh, probably the most famous one on the uh, left, Lonesome George is uh, the one that's had more publicity than any from the Galapagos Islands, although they found some of his genetic material in in another tortoise now elsewhere. But these are the the last ones, a passenger pigeon, Martha in 1914. That was the most abundant bird in North America, but it was good eating and they were hunted completely to death. So extinction is happening in many different ways. And there are many organizations that are giving us the data on this. The Living Planet Report of the World Wildlife Fund shows us uh, what is happening, an 80% 80 reduction in vertebrate animals over the time from 1970 to the present day. I was looking through my library as I was preparing for this, And uh, in my collection of books on climate change, here are just three I picked out to show that it's affecting so many different things. Climate change on birds, climate change on crab populations, soil and climate change. And so it is a worldwide problem that uh, we must address. Now, I would be very tempted and when I'm talking on climate change, I usually go on and give a whole lot of ideas of what we can do about it. I'm only going to mention one today because the last two lectures in this series, you must come to because you must go out doing something about climate change. This is a reserve of which I'm a patron in the Atlantic forests of Brazil. And uh, we began with a small area of 500 hectares. We now control uh, 6,000 hectares because of generosity raising funds. Half of that was already forest. Half of it was agricultural lands. But we have been planting lots of trees. This is a very new plantation. Now, this is putting back forest where it used to be. But those trees, over their life, will absorb a great amount of carbon dioxide. And so, planting trees, but putting them back where trees belong, I'm a bit worried by some of the projects I've seen that want to put trees back in natural habitats that are not forested. So, this is a quote by an old friend of mine, Larry Hamilton, an ecologist who spent his life working for the East-West Institute in Hawaii. And this is what he said in a a publication and a paper that I heard in 1993. It's not ecologists, engineers, or economists, or earth scientists who will save spaceship Earth, but the poets, priests, artists, and philosophers that I think ever since I heard that has been a challenge to me and why it is not just worth speaking in all the scientific meetings I go to uh, with the uh, ecologists, scientists and engineers, but talking to the people who have ethical and moral reasons for saving spaceship earth. So, we need the poets, the priests, the artists and the philosophers. So, I thank this church that you're beginning to uh, do this. We have uh, Pope Francis who uh, has put out this great challenge to the Catholic Church in his encyclical Laudato Si. And this is just an editorial saying in the Washington Post saying, that the Pope was absolutely right in what he said there. There's so much good climate science in Laudato Si, I couldn't believe it. And the church is waking up to, uh, to this, and there are quite a lot of Christian organizations that can help you go forward in climate stewardship. I point out one there that says offset against it, because perhaps my greatest problem is that to talk about this and do research, I have to fly around the world a lot. So I offset this with uh, climate stewards, planting trees in Kenya and in Ghana to uh, put back the carbon from my flights. And a challenge to the churches is eco-congregation. Maybe out of having this series during this Lent, something that might come out of it is that this church will become an eco-congregation. This is the roof of the hall of the church which I belong to. And uh, we struggled initially to be- get become a bronze eco-church, eco-congregation. And then once we'd done very small things, we have a silver award now, and we're working very hard to become gold. This involves the environmental behavior of the church and the environmental behavior of the members of the church. And so it's a challenge that we can do this. Now, I was delighted when the Church of England said that at the Synod they were going to set a net zero carbon by 2045. But when they got together, They reduced that and said they want to be zero-carbon target by 2030. So, you are right on target here in Christchurch by working on uh, this and uh, going along with what the Synod of the Church of England has agreed to do. So, why do we want to do that? Let us just finish by remembering that It's by Christ. For him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. So keep up the good work and follow up. Come to the next four of this series to learn as much as you can about this important topic that we desperately need to address. Climate change. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much for that, Sri. And from my experience on talking to farmers on the Uganda Congo border, where we've got links as a church. They also are saying, we used to know when the rainy season was starting, and now we plant and nothing happens because the rains don't come and the seeds just dry up in the ground. And uh, talking with, with folk there and see, seeing that um, and would echo some of the other examples you've given from, from what, what we've seen there. We're gonna have an opportunity for, <coughs> for questions now. I have one over here. Oh, thanks. It's, it's not really a clarification. I'm just wondering, Sir Ian, how you've managed to stay so sane and affable in the face of such, um, you know, in the early years, such uh, deafening apathy about this?
0: That is a good question because uh, there are up and down moods for me, I think, on that. Uh, to be honest about it, at times I get uh, quite upset about it. But I do think... That the thing that keeps me stable is my Christian faith. And I'm, I'm sure that that's helped me through uh, many different crises in this and given me hope because of uh, my belief in the future and the new creation.
2: Hi, Sian. Um, so you mentioned about the cows and how much methane it produces and the soy plants grown would you then recommend in becoming sort of vegan or at least vegetarian or reducing your eating your meat, would that be better for the environment?
0: Later session, but yes, I I think we should eat a lot less meat, and I would hope that we stopped eating beef. I don't think that... uh, necessarily it's necessary to be uh, extreme as a vegan unless you really feel you want to. But I do think it is essential from the climate change point of view that we uh, stop using uh, beef. So much of the Amazon has been cut down for cattle pasture. And uh, when you see that, and you see the huge area to sustain one cow, you despair about this. If you are going to, make sure it's locally produced, grass-fed, because uh, then that's producing far less methane than uh, the the ones that are free that are being mass-produced. So a good question. And uh, yes, reduce your con your amount of meat if you can.
3: Um. On that is soy. So, for kind of vegetarians or vegans who have soy, what is the likelihood that any of that comes from Brazil or the Amazon?
0: I think the likelihood is fairly small. Fortunately, that a lot of the soy that is used for eating comes from other places. The uh, USA, for example, quite a lot, and. A, Again, we need to look at the labels, where it's come from. Is it uh, produced from a sustainable source? I think with many of the things we use, like palm oil, we do need to be very selective consumers. And certainly that is equally true of soy. So uh, be very careful about it. But I think most of the Brazilian soy that's destroying the Amazon is for feeding cattle.
1: Thank you very much for the to- uh, talk. I was just gonna ask, um, you used the word climate change and lots of people use the, the, the phrase um, global warming. Is there a difference and uh, which would you prefer to
0: use? Or? That's an interesting qu- question. Uh, I I think that I prefer to talk about it as climate change because uh, that it, it is much more than just global warming and the climate change that's happening around the world, uh, is very obvious. If you talk about warming, there are some parts of the world that with climate change are getting colder, and others are getting warmer. It's the world average that is going up. And so for that reason, I think it's much better. We see the effect much more realistically of changing climate than actually of global warming. We know that temperatures will go up and down in cycles anyway, uh, but scientifically there's no doubt that world temperatures are rising and they're reaching 1.5 degrees fast, but uh, I refer much more to it as climate change. One of the wonders of God's creation is the ingenuity of man. And I'm aware of a lot of work going for the Holy Grail, if you like, of converting carbon dioxide into water with a net energy gain. Are you aware of such sort of scientific work in this area that that will actually allow man, with his ingenuity, to solve this problem? Because I can't see us going back...
2: You know uh, and stopping the the use of energy that we've got
0: so used to I uh, think that really basically we have to try and leave the rest of the fossil fuel carbon under the ground uh, I think there's quite a lot of work going on on thinking of ways to store carbon to take it out of the atmosphere. I'm not very optimistic that that will really work, except I know that planting trees in an area that is uh, has been deforested is a very good way of getting an awful lot of carbon back in. And I think that is much probably in the short term that's going to do a lot more than uh, some of the engineering ideas that are going on. And some of those are likely to have a pretty adverse effect that are not tested, such as uh, putting up shades of some sort uh, uh, to stop the sunlight penetrating. And there are all sorts of ideas like that, putting iron filings into the sea to get the plankton to to, uh, produce and uh, put the carbon into the oceans. They're already doing a lot of that without that. And so I am uh, rather uh, skeptical about the future of bioengineering for that.
2: Um, you mentioned um, the tipping point of um, climate change and how close we are to that. Personally, what are your thoughts on how close are we to it? Are we, is it just around the corner? Is it in 10 years, is it in 15 years?
0: That's, uh, an, at the moment, we are liable to get to 1.5 degree increase in average world temperature in about 10 years time. And so, if we wanted to stop it at that, which what is the goal still of the uh, the the international panel of Cl- on climate change? We are not heading near to that at all. I think that uh, we definitely go up to at least uh, two degrees. I, there's very little doubt about that, but. Uh, if we go beyond that i think it would be very dis- disastrous and there'll be much more extreme climate we're already seeing I- in britain uh, a change in climate this rain that we've had recently it never used to be quite like that i remember when i was a student skating every uh, winter on uh, port meadow in oxford uh, well There's so many demonstrations now of how uh, this is going up and up that it needs radical uh, change in this. So I'm all for much more radical uh, environmental action being taken. One of the important aspects on this that and I hope one of the solutions that comes out of this is uh, that they tell you is that uh, one should contact politicians, local, and national, and international, uh, and uh, and send letters about things. And uh, we have we're hosting the next convention of the parties on climate change in Glasgow in November. This is a vital importance for the future of climate change and uh, can we get our government to take enough interest in it we all need to be lobbying about the importance of the meeting in glasgow if we believe and take climate change seriously
1: Yeah, when i was at um, school i think possibly in the late 80s we were learning a lot about cfcs and a sort of giant hole in the ozone layer. And these days that's CFCs and that you don't really hear about. Has that been a success?
0: Now I'm glad you mentioned that because yes, that has been CFCs, uh, compounds that uh, destroy the ozone hole. Now the ozone up there in the atmosphere reduces the amount of, uh, uh, of uh, ultraviolet light coming in, and ultraviolet light in large quantities is very dangerous to uh, humans and to many other animals and plants. And it was getting really serious when uh, the British Antarctic Survey scientists showed this huge hole in the ozone layer over Antarctica. And uh, I don't know why, but they had a protocol was worked out called the Montreal Protocol to gradually ban CFCs. And they even realized that that wasn't enough. And five years later, they strengthened that protocol even more. And so we can do it. Perhaps that is a glimpse of hope that it's been done on one thing. Why can't we do it now with carbon dioxide and methane?
1: Hi. um you you said about Lawrence Hamilton's lovely quote about um, spaceship Earth being saved by the philosophers and priests and poets um, and I just wonder what you think about Western Christianity's responsibility for kind of a perhaps a skewed view of the material world, a low view of the material, world um, and uh, and what role we have theologically beyond simply eco-churches of, of, of leading the charge in that respect. Well, I'm
0: delighted to see that there is a session here on the theology of this, and uh, I, I, you're doing this one. I don't want to steal uh, your thunder too much, but it is extremely important. If you really believe that this is God's creation, And if you read the Bible, you see so many different things in it about taking care of the planet. And this is so closely linked with things of justice. The poor are mentioned over and over again throughout the Bible and taking care of them. And to me, it is shameful that uh, somehow... A lot of Christianity is not listening to that. They've ignored that part of the teaching of the Bible. That's why I was trying to show how delighted I am that the Pope has taken this seriously in Laudato Si. But something that really worries me is that the presidents of the countries that are most Most intent on destroying the atmosphere, the United States and Brazil were elected mainly by the evangelical churches, evangelical Christians. Have they read their Bible? Why will they vote for liars, immoral people, and people who want to destroy God's creation? And I think that is a huge ethical and religious crisis for us today so i'm glad you mentioned that and i hope that you will be addressing that in in more detail Uh,
2: thank you very much it's a great pleasure to sit at your feet again if i may say so but i wondered if as a christian who has thought deeply about this subject for many years you could Uh, say something more of what you've just touched on about the relationship between economic justice and um, climate change. I appreciate this is coming later in the series, but uh, as we've got you here tonight, and you have thought a lot about it, may I tempt you to say something about both in terms of limiting the causes of climate change which uh, seems to me to uh, involve uh, to some extent Uh, the rich countries of the world helping the poorer countries of the world but also perhaps in mitigating the effects of climate change on the poor countries of the world because after all we are members one of another and we have vast wealth and vast technological resources that perhaps could be used to mitigate the effects on the poor of the world.
0: We have and why are we not doing enough of that is certainly uh, what what I would say. We are ignoring the uh, call of the scriptures to care for the poor properly. Uh, One of the real uh, most apparent things is what you said. In some of these countries, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And that is happening in so many of the countries, whether it's a developed country, like the European countries, or a very poor country. There are some v- very, very rich people in India, in Bangladesh, in uh, other countries. And how can we listen to the various scriptural calls to uh, about wealth and the use of wealth to help the poor? We are not uh, really, completing our uh, Christian thoughts in this. And so it's very important that there are churches like this one that are thinking about this, alive to this. And so I will be praying for you in uh, three weeks' time as you uh, expound this uh, in more detail.
1: I'm curious, as
4: in some of the places you have visited, do you ever feel or sense the presence of God directing you to be in that region to look at a particular plant or species, or do you go purely on the basis of research? Uh,
0: That's an interesting question. Uh, I think that uh, I go there Uh, for uh, scientific curiosity, but I think that uh, one thing that my work is doing, it's showing more about how God's creation works. And there's sometimes when uh, you uh, feel that, really, you are here in this particular place because it was the Lord's will that you should be here. And uh, so... Uh, I I think that from time to time, that does an element of that, God's presence in uh, what I'm doing in some of the places I've been. I've had some quite remarkable experiences really with uh, some of the uh, remote places I've been to in the Amazon and the people I've met there. And uh, the Fellowship I've had with uh, Christians in some of these places too.
1: I think we'll um, draw a halt to the questions at that point. Um, And thank you for um, your thinking out through. I'm going to ask Sarah and Nathan to come up now. I've, I've asked them to be listening to what's been said tonight in both the questions and in what was said in the lecture. And I'm going to ask them to come and Um, Serena and I go and sit down but they're just going to to highlight some of the things that have struck them and um, have challenged them perhaps um, during this evening and they will then go on to close in prayer for us after they've done that
4: yeah I just wanted to say an absolutely massive thank you that was so interesting. Um, for me, as like a personal perspective, um, I'm currently writing a dissertation about the effects that climate change is having on uh, the way we shop and f- the fashion industry and how incredibly detrimental that is for the planet. So learning about the way that, um, that it's affecting all kinds of nature and world and everything is just fascinating and also really sad as well, it's really devastating to hear about. I think especially as well, um, it's very easy for us to make uh, changes in our lives because of you know these influences that we have at the moment. There's such a massive push for us to live in a way that's more sustainable and that is so incredible. Uh, but to actually see the impact that it's having, we don't always get to see that in our lives. Every day, um, there are some things like you mentioned, the rain that we've just had, like crazy amounts of rain. Um, but a lot of the time, the impact of climate change—correct um, me if I'm wrong—but it is in the poorer countries and developing countries we see like the the changes in the way that those flowers are, um, the plants are flowering Um, and I think for us especially um, in this country to be able to see the effects that climate change is having around the world um, is so incredible to help spur us on to say that actually this is a real thing that's happening and and this is something we need to do something about.
3: Mm. Yes, yeah, I want to say thank you. I found it fascinating. Um, I'd not learned much about it, um, and it was really fascinating. I think a few of the, the, the points that I came away with was, was that statistic you said about the deforestation has risen by 82% since last year, it's just, or the year before. It is actually just... I mean, that's insane. When you thought it was going down and it's actually risen by so much, is terrifying. But I think one thing that struck me was there was an excitement when you were talking about that we can make this change, that it is terrifying, and if we don't make a change, it's devastating. But in reality, there is an excitement that we can have about fixing this problem, that it's not just everything is awful. There is ways, and people are investing time and effort, and it's the grassroots-level people that need to make this change because the people at the top aren't doing it in terms of the government, Um, And it's it's actually us and we can make these changes and impact the people who are higher up to invest in changing the way that we conduct our lives and reduce our carbon footprint, um, which I just found fascinating.
4: Yeah, so uh, going on to that, I just want to really, really encourage you all, please come along to the next four um, evenings in this series. Um, obviously, next week's going to be learning more about it, but then going on, we're going to be really hearing about how we can actually make practical changes in our lives, which is so important, um, and really encouraging to hear that actually we can make a difference. Obviously, it's devastating, but this is something that Um, that we're called to you know this is god's creation and as christians it's so important that we look after it so really really want to encourage you to come along um and finally can we just have a massive round of applause for sirian thank you so much uh, would you like to close in prayer yeah
3: Lord Jesus, we, just, we thank you that you are king above all things, that all of creation was made for you and by you, and we just pray that you will help us in our daily lives to make these small changes that in the end will make a big impact in the world. Um, and I thank you for the rest of this series that it's such an important topic, and as Christians we get to really invest and understand how we can make a change and what the change is happening. And I bless everyone's week. Amen.
4: Amen. Thank you so much for coming. Hopefully see you next week.